So happy Father's Day, guys. Uh, <laughs> besides our awesome singing, I love the last line, you know, in there that no children were actually punished. So all of you, you know, call off your lawsuits. It was just a, it was just a joke, all right? But happy Father's Day. It's great to be here. It's great to uh, join with you as we, we celebrate that and as we continue through our journey through the scriptures. And actually, if you've been with us since September, you know we've been on a journey here at Calvary, going through the story from beginning to end and we are literally coming to an end of that journey, uh, and we will actually finish it up next Sunday. will be our last Sunday in this journey through the story. And we're taking that, that journey uh, very, very gradually, but very excited, the things that we've learned. I, I would encourage you, on your connection card inside your, uh, your info card this morning, at the bottom, there is a, a challenge for this week to read. There's a verse to memorize, but also I would encourage you to read Genesis 1 and 2 as well as Revelation 21 and 22. And when you come back next Sunday, you'll understand why, but we're bringing this all to a, a conclusion, and it all connects, and, and that's what we want to talk about next Sunday. So I hope that you will join us next week as we wrap up this series, bring somebody with you as we bring this to conclusion, and I would challenge you to read those, those verses as we get started. But today, here's what we're going to talk about. The, the theme for today is simply this, here comes the judge. Now, at some point in all of our lives, each one of us have faced some form of uh, evaluation, some kind of a judgment or some kind of a, a, a something based on our decisions, or our actions. It might have been something like a, a, a judge at a contest and you're waiting for the results. And the winner is, right? But you're waiting for the results of someone evaluating what you did. Maybe it's a, a, a quarterly or an annual review at your office. Uh, maybe it's an appointment with a friendly IRS agent, right? Uh, maybe it's, a, uh, it's the idea of, uh, Mr. Switzer, please come to the principal's office, right? You, you've all faced something like that, or, or maybe you look in the rearview mirror, and here comes that friendly police officer with this ticket book in hand. Or even as we saw in the video, maybe it was those words, wait till your father gets home, right? We've all experienced some form of evaluation, some form of, of bringing everything to a conclusion. We have a variety of emotions. We have a variety of memories as all these things uh, come to pass. Well, as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, the verse that I want to focus on, and this is the verse I would encourage you to memorize. I've given you a different verse each week as we've gone through Revelation. Here's the one for this week. Revelation chapter 22, verse number 12. Listen to what the, what, how Jesus is bringing all this to a conclusion. He says this, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Let's, let's just walk through that verse just a little bit more. He starts this way. Look, I am coming soon. Jesus said uh, there, there's, the, the word soon is just what you think it is. It means quickly, but it carries the idea of something suddenly, something without delay, something that is going to come, and it's going to come and going to fulfill. It, the things that are going to happen are going to come in rapid succession. It's going to start it. You're going you're to be hit by it. You're going to know it's going to happen. And that becomes a foundation of what we're, we're looking at today. It implies that there's an urgency here. As the book of the, 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 the Bible wraps itself up and Jesus gives us his final words, you hear this urgency, the idea of being ready. That's, that's what I am coming soon. Now look at the next phrase. And he says, and my reward is with me. When I come, I am bringing, and, and the word reward means what, uh, the idea of something due, something based on accomplishment, based on a, an action, and it can use either side. It can be a reward, something given as congratulations, or it's a word for punishment. Either way, he says, I'm coming, I'm bringing my... So literally, here comes 
the judge. The judge is coming. Then the next verse, verse number 13, look what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If you remember, if you've been with us in this short series, we started chapter 1, Jesus said that. That's how we reveal Jesus. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the Yahweh, the one and everything exists. In other words, he was before the beginning, he will be after the end, and he's everything in between. Everything consists and, and runs through and comes a part of Jesus. I am the Alpha and Omega. And so he is the one that is coming, and when he's coming, he's bringing his reward. That's the that's the the concept of where we're talking about today. Here's what I want to kind of give us an idea. We've been talking about this, the book of Revelation, and, and using chapter 1 and verse number 19 as kind of an outline for the book, kind of a chronological, chronological succession, if you would, of how the book operates. Let me remind you, verse number 19, Jesus said this, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Chronologically, we saw the first week that what, what John had seen, those are the images of Jesus, the, the actual writing of the book, those things that God showed him, specifically chapter 1 of who Jesus was. Then last week, we talked about the what is now, the idea of the churches, and, and we are living in that particular, that particular part of this, this book, the what is now, the, the church age, if you would. But then we have what will take place later. That's future. And, and I believe that the majority of the book of Revelation is what will take place later. From chapter 4 to chapter 22 are all events that are still future. They were future when John wrote it in 95 A.D. They're future now still to us in 2017 A.D. It's still something to happen, things that are still to come. I, this morning I want to take just a moment, and I, I really want to just, I, I don't hope this isn't confusing. I really hope it will be clarifying to you. Because I want to give you kind of a timeline of the chronological events as, as we're looking at them through the book of, of Revelation. Kind of give you a step-by-step uh, a step of, of what we're looking at, how this all works. And in that, based on these, this verse and this outline, there are, there are some key end-time events that I want you to focus on. And you'll see some of them in your outline. You can fill in this timeline however you'd like. But let me give you the four events. And, and uh, Trust me, this is, not a this is not an infallible line. I'm not saying that there couldn't be some discussion or, or disagreement, but I believe it's a reasonable overview of how things are happening as you see in the book of Revelation. The four events are what we call the churches or the church age, the tribulation period. The church age is where we are. We don't know how long it's going to last. It's still going because we're still here. The tribulation is a literal seven years and, and this is what you got to remember. As we're looking through Revelation, I believe that we should interpret it the same way we interpret the rest of the Scriptures. Yes, there are symbols, there are things that represent certain things, but these are literal events. This is reality that just hasn't happened yet. These are events that are still to come. So there will be a literal seven years tribulation. There is a messianic kingdom which lasts a thousand years, the millennium of Jesus. And then the new heavens and new earth will last for eternity forever to go. Those are some key events as you go through the book of Revelation. However, the question is, how do these things, are there any indications of when these kind of things will begin? Well, we know specifically, if you go to chapter 19, you'll see, in, and we'll see this timeline begin to fill in, what we refer to as the second coming or the glorious appearing of Jesus. That's when, as John writes, every eye will see him. Every, this is when he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. This is when he visibly comes back to this earth and he will set up his kingdom. We know that happens in chapter 19, and then the thousand years begins after that. But I also believe that there is an indicator before this tribulation begins. 
1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 talks about a time when it, it, the, the verse, verse 16 of chapter 4 literally says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air. That word caught up is the word we use for rapture. The idea of that, it, that, that there is a point in which Jesus calls his church out of this world. Now, Obviously, there are some people who believe this could happen at different times. We don't really argue that it's going to happen, but when it will happen. This is not definitive, and I don't have time to dive into it all the way, but there's something very interesting that happens in Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3, specifically 2 and 3, all you talk about is the churches. There's seven churches. That's what it is. The churches, the churches. This is the word to the churches. Chapter 4, the word church is not used again until chapter 19. Chapter 19, we're introduced as the bride who comes back with the king, the second coming. And then the word church again is used in chapter 22. So chapters 4 through 19, the church is visibly absent from the book of Revelation. Now, there are people who can argue through that, but I think that's very interesting because I believe that the church will, as it is today, will not be here during those literal seven years. But that will be kind of the key, uh, key aspect that begins this tribulation period. And so we kind of walk through with that idea in mind. But one thing you've got to keep in mind with that being throughout the book of Revelation and actually through the New Testament, there's this idea that this could happen at any time. It's the word we would refer to as imminent. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. Here's what you, some of the phrases you read in Revelation. What must soon take place. A couple times. Uh, the time is near, at least twice in Revelation. And as we already read, look, I am coming soon, Jesus said. Verses 7, 12, and 20 of chapter 22. But even through other parts of the New Testament, these three verses and others, it talks about this fact that they were looking for Jesus to come. That this was something they expected to happen any time. In fact, it seems very uh, it, that the New Testament church expected him to come before they were gone. Acts chapter 1, when the disciples saw him leave, it was almost like they were just, they were waiting there because they thought, well, that was cool, but come back. They expected him to come back in their lifetimes. This week, as I was studying this, I had a flashback to the 60s and 70s. It was all around a song. Some of you are laughing because you've had flashbacks, but I don't think it was the same song probably we're talking about here. I had a flashback, and here the, this song was very popular. I actually found it. It was written in 1942. Remember that date because it's significant. The first line of this song says this, Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedom we all hold dear now is at stake. Now that last line, freedom we all hold dear now is at stake, think about when it was written, 1942, right in the middle of World War II. What an interesting thing. But then the chorus, this is the one we remember. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night. Come on, don't leave me hanging. You know what the song is, right? Every quartet, every Southern Gospel quartet has sung a version of that song. You go look back, the Oak Ridge Boys, the cathedrals, the inspirations, everyone has sung a version of that song. When I was growing up as a little boy, my family sang this, sang they were a Southern Gospel group. They were called the Melantones. I didn't say melatonins, okay, they're, they're melatones. We grew watermelons, okay, that's why. I know it's cheesy, but we were called the melatones, all right? So that was funny, right? Okay, anyway. And I remember as a boy hearing this song. This was the, 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 the Jesus is coming soon. I sang it in quartets. Many of you, I, I heard Bruce saying amen. You know this song. And, and the idea of this is that we've been anticipating that Jesus could come back at any time. Now, from what I believe, that goes clear back to about 34 A.D. 
that as soon as Jesus left, they felt he could come back at any time. And that becomes kind of the understanding of these future time events. But here's what we want to talk about today. So what happens after that? What happens after the return of Jesus? In, in whichever stage we're talking, the rapture or the, the, the second coming, what, what happens in those events? And that takes us back to Revelation 22, verse 12. Let's read it again. Look, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. This scene presented here is where we get the, the phrase from, are you ready to meet your maker? It's the idea of standing before God face-to-face personally. I don't know if you've ever imagined what that might be, what this entails. I, I've, especially years ago, I, I just pictured it being this huge TV screen. And, and I, as I sat down, he just says, roll the tape, right? And everything that I've done rolls through there. That, that was some of the thoughts. That I, I, I don't know how it's actually going to work. But Jesus said that I'm coming and I'm bringing my reward with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Now, a lot of the the stories, the jokes go with this, you know, and most of them are are jokes about St. Peter, right? Everybody comes and meets St. Peter and and it's a a pastor, a rabbi, and a a priest, or you know, those kind of jokes, the idea of what's going to happen and and whether you're going to get in and all. But the truth is we know that that has nothing to do with how the Bible describes the judgment. But what does the Bible say about it? And that's what we want to talk about today. This is a significant issue. Jesus, as he ends this book, as he ends the entire Bible, brings this picture in mind that the judge is coming. And he's bringing with him his reward. And and what does that look like? And that's what we want to talk about today. As we know, in the scriptures, there is at least two judgments mentioned. A judgment for those who are, are followers of Christ, believers, disciples. There is a judgment for those. And there is a judgment for those who are not. Those who are unbelievers. Those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. But here's the point I want you to, and we're going to say it now and we'll, we'll wrap it up at the end. The truth is, everyone in this room... Every person that's ever lived at one point will stand face-to-face before God in judgment. That's a biblical reality. So the question will be, are we ready? How will we stand? Things that happen now during this life will affect what's going to happen at those particular events of the judgment. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the first one, Judgment Day for Disciples. The biblical scripture for this would be called the Judgment Seat of Christ. The Judgment Day for Disciples, this is a place for all those who know him. And the book of Revelation doesn't give us a lot of detail about this, so we'll find greater detail in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you want to follow me, if you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, 2 Corinthians 5 gives us an idea. But let me back up a little bit before we actually use that phrase. Paul is talking about, in 2 Corinthians 5, he's talking to believers, and he's talking about that time at the end, what's going to happen. He he gives this analogy of the tents and and moving out and those kind of things and talk about coming home. So he starts this in verse number 6. Listen to what he says. Therefore, we are always confident and knowing that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith not by sight. We know that if we're here, we're not with God, but, but that's okay because we live by faith that, he, that he's still our God. We got that. Now, verse 8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body 
or away from it. Did you notice two big words in there? That's the word confidence, repeated twice. There's something about this end that Paul says, as believers, we can have absolute confidence in what's going to happen. That when, when this life is over and we talk about what's going to happen next, he says, as a believer, I stand in absolute confidence, and you can as well. As a follower of Christ, this is not a, he's not talking of dread and terror. He's talking about something that he's able to do in confidence, something about the, the standing here, the, the word, uh, he, he goes on to say this idea of confidence, you're, depending on your version, may say a, be of good courage. It actually says, I am cheerful. I, I have this idea of, of the end to him is not something to be dreaded, something to be, to be in terror. This is something that I, I stand in cheerfulness about. This event is, is a place of confidence. But, but understand, this isn't a place of confidence because he's, he's uh, understanding what he has done so well. Here's what you've got to remember. First and foremost, if you're standing at this judgment seat of Christ, you're standing there because of the grace of Jesus. You're standing there because of what Jesus' blood did for you. You're not standing there because you earned it, you deserved it, your good works outweighed your bad works, has nothing to do with what you did to get there. If you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, it's because of what Jesus did when he saved you, when he forgave you. So Paul's standing there in confidence, not over what he's done. He's standing in confidence of his relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is a place he says, now I stand confident. I'd rather be home with, with Jesus, but whatever, I'm by faith, and by, I'm standing here in confidence knowing what is to come. And notice he also says that I make it my goal. I labor. I, depending on your version, it literally means I am ambitious. I give it everything that I've got. I work earnestly. My aim in life, and what did he say it is? It, my aim is to please the Lord. My aim, everything that I pour my life into, it is to, because I want to put a smile on God's face about what I'm doing. I'm one of his kids, I stand in confidence, and I live my life because I want him to smile. I want to please God with the things that I do. Why is this so important, Paul? Look at the next verse, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now again, both times we see in Scripture, or the times we see in Scripture where this idea of the judgment seat is mentioned, it's always in the context of believers. He's speaking here to believers. He speaks to Romans, to the church of Rome. He's talking about what we as believers are going to stand for. But look at this. We must, say it with me, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us who are followers of Christ will stand before our Savior. We will stand at this judgment seat of Christ. We all must appear. Now, now the, the question comes down to then, well, when is this? What is this judgment seat? Paul seems to not be afraid of it. He says, I'm going to be standing there in confidence. So what is this judgment seat? When is it going to happen? Now, the when is up to discussion, obviously. But let me give you one possible scenario of what the when is based on some things we've understand. Let me go back to the timeline that we looked at before. When we look at that rapture, many people would believe the judgment seat happens during, in heaven, it will happen during the period of tribulation here on earth. The church will be in heaven because, and basically they, a lot of it comes back to a verse in Luke 14, 14, which says, Jesus saying, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Talking about the things that they had done for him. You'll be repaid. There is a and the resurrection of the righteous would be another word for when the church is taken out, when the rapture happens, the resurrection of those who are saved. So if we believe this timeline, it's very possible that that's the time of when this judgment seat will take place. But, but what is this? What is this judgment seat of Christ? What does it look like? 
Well, let's look at the word first of all. The word is in the Greek is the word bima. Let me show you a picture of an actual bima seat. Shelley and I actually were standing at that place about two weeks ago in Corinth. It's a place that, that they have unearthed in Corinth, and there's a little plaque on the wall, but if you could see the inscriptions engraved in there, it literally is the word in Greek for bima. Bema is a word for judgment. What most people believe that that's where in Acts chapter 18, Paul stood before a guy named Galileo, who was, they were trying to get him to, to take Paul out, right? And so he stood in judgment. He stood at Bema before Galileo at this particular place. So we also know when Jesus stood before Pilate, the word that he said he stood at the judgment of Pilate is the same word. Jesus stood at the Bema of Pilate. The idea of, uh, so there were times when this judgment was for guilt, for uh, punishment, those kind of ideas that sometimes that's what the word bima means. It also has the idea, and most of his readers, especially in Corinthians, would understand that the word bima had to do with athletics. It was an athletic event when somebody, specifically in the Olympics, when you were running a race, there were judges that were standing at this bima, and they were watching the race to make sure you followed the rules, make sure you did what you're supposed to so you wouldn't be disqualified. And then when the race was over, you came before these judges, and they would present the rewards. They would literally, and you'll see the next screen, they would give crowns, a victor's crown. They, usually when we think of crowns, we think of what royalty wears. This is probably more what a crown looked like. It was either a, a, the the, the the natural wreath or maybe something of gold, but it was a crown place on their head. And so they would come before the bima, and the, the, the judges would then present the rewards to those who had run their race. That's what the word talks about. It's this idea of standing and being evaluated for what you have done, this victor's crown. So let's go back, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all be, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's go on. It says, so that each of us, remember, each of us, that's believers, each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we as believers, we're standing before God, blood-bought, our sins are washed away. We're standing before Jesus as the judge and judge for the things that we have done in our body since the point that we received Christ. Let me point one other word in this verse because it just grabbed my attention. The word appear. We must all appear before the judgment seat. Now, when we hear that, we, we understand that in court. You must appear before the judge, right? That simply means you have to be present. You have to come before him. That word is a lot deeper than that. That word literally means to bring to light. It means to expose. It means full disclosure. Understand this. At the judgment seat of Christ, everything is out in the open. You're standing before Jesus, and there are no more secrets. There are no more hidden agendas. You can't hide your motives, you can't uh, sneak around, or you can't try to, 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 to hold things back so that you, you, everything, you must appear. You will be made in full disclosure. But understand, Christians, if you are there, you're standing there as one whose sins are washed away. This is a, this, you're standing before the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. There is no more secure place in the world at the, that you have never been as vulnerable as you'll be at this moment. You'll be completely vulnerable, but think about who you're being vulnerable before. You're being vulnerable before the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me try to explain. I, I, this would take weeks if we dive into it, but let me give you just a couple of overviews. Here's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. Number one is this. The judgment seat is an evaluation for reward. Think about this, Christians. 
the one who gave his life for you because you were in your sins, you didn't deserve it. He gave his life, you received his gift, he washes away your sins. We don't deserve anything else. And yet he promises as his followers that on top of that, he's going to reward us. Is that not amazing, believers? But think about it. you're standing before God who gave his life for you, and he's actually going, bringing rewards with him for you, for what you have done. You're going to appear, and notice what it says, so that each may receive what is due us. Now understand, this has got to be Christians, because if you're without Christ, what is due you? Well, the Bible says your death is due. So this is not talking about anyone who's in their sin. This is talking about believers, and he's actually going to look at what you've done. He's going to give rewards for what, what you have done for him. Now, your, your salvation does not come because of your good works, but your good works are now evidence that you have been saved. Following Christ now, God begins to work, begins to transform. You will stand before Jesus as a trophy of his grace, and all that he has done and how he is changing your life and all the things that he has done through you from the point of your salvation, you stand before him and he looks at what he has done and he says, this is one of my kids. Look at how I've changed them. Look at how I've worked in their life. We stand before and he literally then looks at our life. Here's a summary verse. I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 5. Paul says this, wait until the Lord comes. Look at this. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness He will expose the motives of the heart. Right there, I would stop and say, oh, man, I don't like that. But look at the next phrase. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Holy cow, I stopped and read that this week and said, what? I'm going to be praised by God? No way. I don't deserve to be saved by God, let alone to be praised by him. The judgment seat of Christ, the reason Paul was confident is because I'm going to stand before the one not only who loves me, but has been changing my life and is actually going to reward me for what he's done in these years. Wow, it's amazing. It's not only the evaluation for reward, but it's an accountability of your service. It takes into account what you have done. Now, we're, we're, we're told that because of salvation, we are God's workmanship, created to do good works, we, didn't, we weren't saved because of our good works, but he begins to work in us, and now what we do, we do for him and through him, and so he begins to hold us in account. He gives us talents and gifts to be able to do what he has called us to do. He provides us with the resources, and so now we will be held in account for what we did with what he gave us to serve him with. Several times in Scripture, Jesus gives the illustration of a, a and it kind of goes the same way. A traveler goes a long way, and it's a parable of this, this whole thing. He says, a traveler goes away, he's the master, and he leaves his servants in charge, and he gives them the resources. He tells them what to do, and he gives them the resources to do it. He goes away, and then when he comes back, they stand, and he holds them in account. What did you do with what I gave you? That's what the, that's what the judgment seems about. It's holding accountable for after your salvation. What have you done with what God has given you to serve him with? In fact, here's how Romans says it. Paul says this, so then each of us, again, this is all believers, will give an account of ourselves to God. He will give an account of what you've done for Christ. He's gave you resources. He's given you opportunities. He's given you a work to do. What have you done with it? What are you doing with it now? Are you going to stand and give an account based on what God has given you about what he has called you to do? Let me, let me jump here and just give you some ideas. The judgment is not a few things. I'll tell you what the judgment is, but make sure you understand this. The judgment is not, please gather this around, it's not an evaluation to see if you've done good enough to get to heaven. 
please get this if you've got anything else. The judgment seat has nothing about whether, oh, nope, didn't make it. No, not at all. If you're standing at this judgment seat, it's because your sins have been washed away. You're already a citizen of heaven. So this is not about, did you do enough to get here? It has nothing to do with that. Secondly, it is not a punishment. There is no condemnation at this judgment. You're not going to be standing here, and then God meets out his wrath on all the bad things you did. Since you, this, you're, here, listen to what John 5 says. Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, look at this, and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death into life. Christians, through Jesus Christ, you stand uncondemned. And you will not be condemned at this judgment. It is not about punishment. It is not about condemnation. Your sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's also not an evaluation by comparison. He's not looking at your life and your things compared to what the guy across the aisle is doing. He's not looking at you and saying, well, you know how your grandma lived? You sure didn't live up to that one. Or Billy Graham, or you, you name it. It's not, understand, it's not a competition, Christians. We're, we're just competitive Americans, and so we're thinking this race is as long as I beat this guy, I'm okay. It's not about a competition. You're not being compared to anyone else. This is an evaluation of the race God gave you and the resources he gave you to run that race with. It's also not an opportunity to strut your stuff. You're not going to be pulling your wagon with all your crowns and all your rewards in it going, hey, look at this. Your wagon's not as full as mine, Bruce. Just remember that. You know, it's not, it's not about strutting our stuff. It's not about comparing. Bruce, you shouldn't have said amen because now I got you in my head, okay? <laughs> here's the idea. It's not about strutting your stuff it's because here's what you're going to realize. You're not standing there because you did anything good. And you didn't do any of that because you're good. Everything that we have, even standing before Christ, is a gift of his grace to us. Let me, let me just give you an idea of the attitude that's going to happen because of this. If we go back to Revelation chapter 4, verse number 10 and 11, the Bible gives this event for us. It says this, the 24 elders, which I believe represent the churches, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And notice what they do. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. I think that's going to be what we do. We receive this praise and whatever the reward is, and there's many others. The Bible talks about five different crowns in the New Testament. There are different ways of serving. Whatever the reward is, and I believe we're going to stand, and when we see Jesus, we're going to go, I don't deserve this. Thank you. You're worthy doesn't take anything away from what he's given us, but it sure makes us understand who he is and what he's done. And one last thing I want you just to kind of think about. What I've read about these judgments is you're not being held accountable for the results. I want you to think, you're not held accountable for results. Sometimes God's going to ask you to plant seed, to water seed, to just be faithful in a ministry, just to do something, and you're not, especially in this life, may never see a visible result for that. And sometimes you think, I'm a failure. I, I do, I feel that. I feel, what am I doing? I'm, do, it, I'm not doing anything right. I don't see anywhere in these judgments where he said, it, he, he rolls out all the accomplishments and says, look at all that you have done. It's, it's not about your results. Here's what the judgment is about. 
The judgment is you're going to be held accountable for your effort. He talks about giving all of your heart, doing with everything that you've got. Giving, he talks about to those servants, don't be a lazy servant. He, he talks about giving everything that you've got. He's going to be judged according to your motives. Why did you do it? Were you doing it for, for God, for your love, for him, to please him, as Paul said? Were there other motives? Everything will be judged by that. Here's how uh, Colossians says it. We work at it with all our heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Those are the things that God holds us accountable for. He's going to hold you accountable for your obedience. If God said to do it, did you just do it? And that takes faith. It takes that ability to say, God, I don't see it, but if you tell me I'm going to do it. You're going to be held accountable for it. Did you just obey me? But here's the big one that the Bible says over and over again, you will be held accountable for your faithfulness. Not results, but were you faithful? Did you do what I told you to do and just kept doing it and endured through it and just kept at it and kept at it? Even if you didn't see anything happen, you just kept at it. You were faithful. to what. Here's what 1 Corinthians 4.2 says. It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And in those parables, at the end of each one of those, the words that we're going to hear, these words of praise, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. The word is faithfulness. The word is endurance. The word is just continuing to do what God has called you to do. That's what God, this, this judgment seat is an evaluation for reward. It's, a, it's an accountability for the way that you did what you used, what God has given you. That's the judgment seat of Christ. But as the book of Revelation continues, we talk about as, as things move. We now we come to the latter, latter chapters of the book of Revelation. One particular chapter grabs my attention. Chapter 20, we know as things are coming, the, that thousand years I told you about is coming to an end. Verse number 10, to me, is one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible. Listen to what it says. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet had been thrown, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil loses. He knows he loses, and he's trying everything he can to defeat this verse, but it's not going to happen. He loses. Ultimately, the devil loses. But with that thought in mind, the Bible now moves into these next verses, and it talks about this second judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, it's a place where we stand before the one who loves us, talks about what we do with what he's given to us, and we stand in confidence because we know our sins are forgiven, and we're, we're being now rewarded and accountable. For, but there is another judgment. A judgment day for unbelievers. And the Bible refers to that judgment day as the great white throne judgment. After we hear this verse from, uh, about the devil, then that particular theme begins to carry on and what's going to happen. And verse number uh, 11 of, of Revelation 20 says, Then I saw a great white throne and whom, him who sat on it. Before we dive a little further into that verse, in case you're asking the when question, let me just show you, based on the timeline that we've thrown out, when this great white throne would happen. It would happen at the end of the thousand years, before the eternity begins. So we have the judgment seat of Christ, we have the great white throne judgment. We have, that would be the when, but let's talk about the what. And before we do, let me just give you a problem that we have. The problem especially that we see in our world, the problem that we have in a lot of our circles, and I understand the reasoning for it, but the problem that we have is that so many of us assume that heaven is our default destination. Here's how it goes. You know, Uncle Frank, man, he, good guy, passed away. 
you know, he never went to church, maybe a funeral, a wedding here or there, but boy, he was a good guy. He never really talked about God or faith, but such a good guy. And I know he's in a much better place now. Here's the, here's the reality. We want that to be true. And, and I don't know. He could be. I don't know. That's between him and God. That's the honest truth. But here's what you've got to understand. Heaven is not our default destination. There has to be something that changes our destination for us to enjoy the last two chapters of Revelation, which we'll talk about next week. In fact, here's how Jesus put it. Matthew chapter 7. He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus made it very clear that there are two destinations, and, and the, the most people are on the wrong path. There's a few that will find the, this, the difference. Heaven's not our default. I mean, we're, we're kind of thrown at it in our culture, especially today. It's kind of a revival of, of what's called universalism, which basically says that um, at some point, somewhere in the future, every person's going to find that narrow gate. That's just universalism in, in, a, in a nutshell, that someday everyone will, in some form, everyone's going to find salvation. And folks, I believe that most of the scriptures, but especially these passages in Revelation, would deny that vehemently. That there is two destinations and heaven's not our default. But there is going to be a second judgment. Even the term that I used here, unbelievers, that has its own baggage. Because some people say, well, sure, I believe in God. I believe there was a Jesus. Fantastic. But that's a mental assent. That's a mental agreement. But, but those same people, have they, have they truly accepted what Jesus did on the cross, recognizing their need for sin and received him? Because there is a difference. Listen to how this great white throne is described. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Verse 12, and I saw the, the dead, small and great. That means everyone, rich, poor, it doesn't matter who you are, small and great. Everyone is included in this. Standing before God, the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is a description of all those who are dead without Jesus Christ, all those whose works have not been covered by the blood. This is all of the, the rest of the humanity who will not be at the judgment seat of Christ Look into what it says, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death in Hades delivered up the death who were in them. They were judged each according to his works. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then notice the determining factor, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Same lake referenced just a few verses earlier, Satan and all of his cohorts will spend forever and ever. All those whose names not found written in the book of life, same destination. It's quiet and it should be in here at this point. This is a tough message to think about. In fact, there's a lot of, 
a lot of preachers and teachers who are shying away from this message because universalism is so much more loving and pleasant. But folks, it's not true. The truth is there, is two ju- there are two judgments. For the, for the saved, it's a judgment seat of Christ where we stand before the one who has saved us. And we talk about our rewards. But there is a judgment for all those whose names are not found written in the book of life. Here's how he describes it. He said, you, some would say, well, that's not fair. I don't, I don't like this part. Understand, what you're seeing in action is pure justice. Justice in its purest form. Because God said that the wages of sin is death. And when you see him opening the books, what are those books? Well, best understanding I can have is that's the books of all that, all that he's done. Remember, he brings a reward, everything that has been done. And he begins to show you why this is justice. He said sin would have its consequences. And so he's going to open up. And you talk about every, that we'll be vulnerable before Jesus is the judgment. Well, think about this. Standing before the God of the universe, every motive, every thought, every action, every attitude, every sin that has ever been committed, and he's going to stand before you and say, because of this, and because of this, and because of this, because of this, you have died in your sins, and there's no sacrifice to cover it. You did not receive the gift of Jesus, and so his blood did not cover your sins. You stand here now accountable. You stand here condemned in your sins. And because of that, your name was never written in the Lamb's book of life. And all of those whose names not found written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. I think the books personally might also mention some of the times when you just simply denied. You looked at creation and came up with your own ideas of what made that start. Or you look around the world and you come up with your own understanding of I did this for me and I made myself big and you forgot that God gave you your breath. I think he'll bring that up. I think he'll bring up every time that you had an opportunity, maybe in a service just like this, to hear the truth and to know that Jesus died and rose again for you and that he gave his blood for you and all the times that you walked out that door and said, not today, not for me, don't want to do it. I think the books are going to show every opportunity God gave us to miss this judgment. And we chose not to. Every name not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Two judgments. Here's the point of today. Every one of us, we, I, please personalize this. I will stand in judgment before God. Every one of us in this room, every person that you know, at some point in the future, will stand before God to be judged. That's a reality, just hasn't happened yet. It's coming. But here's the second thing I want you to get. We, I, will stand in one of two ways. I will either stand in confidence, as Paul talked about, or I'll stand in condemnation. I'll either stand in confidence because of my relationship with Jesus Christ and what he did for me, and I'm not afraid of that day. There's going to be some awkward moments, I believe, when God says, why didn't you do this? We could have done this. And I give an account for some of the resources I wasted. But I stand in confidence because I know he loved me and I know where I'm going. But if you stand at the great white throne, that's a throne of condemnation. But Christians, here's a verse, here's a couple verses I want you to grab and take home today. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
if you know Jesus, this great white throne has nothing to do with you. You are not condemned. Your sins are washed away. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west. Whatever analogy you want to use according to scriptures, Jesus' blood has wiped away your sins. You are no, no longer condemned. You will never be condemned. You stand before God confident because of what Jesus did in your life. If, if Christ has come in and you've received that gift, there is no condemnation. And in fact, in another verse, verse chapter 5 and verse 2, through whom, that's Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this great grace in which we now stand. We stand in confidence, not because of what I have done, not because of what I've ever done and will ever do, but I stand in confidence because of his grace, because of what he did, of who Jesus is. And I can stand confidently today, not perfect, but confident, confident that he loves me, confident I'm going to stand before him as the one who loves me. I'm going to stand in that confidence because I am no longer condemned. At the age of eight years old, I received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. The gospel came, changed my heart, has been changing me ever since, and I will never be condemned. And I will stand at judgment before God in confidence, as Paul mentioned, because of that relationship with Jesus Christ. But every one of us will stand face-to-face -face before a holy God. And you will either stand in confidence or you'll stand condemned. I've heard somebody say, and I think it has some biblical reasoning, that on that day when we face God, he will ask us one, possibly two questions. First question would be this. What did you do with my son, Jesus? What did you do with the gift of eternal life? When it was offered to you, what did you do about it? What did, did you receive that gift and secondly, what did you do? If you know Christ, what did you do with the gifts I gave you to serve me? We'll stand in confidence, but he's going to say, so I gave you this opportunity. I gave you these abilities. I told you to do this. What did you do with that? But we will stand one day before our maker. Are we ready? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heads bowed and eyes closed. This is an obviously an, an ominous topic. Talk about the end. Well, this is our end. This is where it comes down to what, what we will face in the future. And every one of us will stand before God. Will you stand before him in confidence because the blood of Jesus Christ has washed you of your sin? Will you stand before him ready to hear what the master wants to say or would you say today, I've, I've not yet received that gift. I would stand today condemned before a holy God. How would you stand? Are you ready to meet your creator? And, and Christians, as we look at this, again, it's, it's not a judgment of terror, but God's saying, would you just look at what I called you to do and what I've given you to do it? I, I want you to stand before me when we have, have that meeting and, and just stay faithful. Just, just do what I've called you to do. Just be faithful. What a great day that could be. Father, I pray that uh, take your word and your truth and you just pierce it into our hearts today. And whatever this means to us, help us to respond. I pray that if there's anyone in this room 
has not received the gift of eternal life through Jesus, that today they would realize you're giving them a wonderful opportunity to do that very thing, just to bow on their knees before you and just be immersed by your grace and to receive your gift of salvation. Let them come to you today. And for Christians, you would just inspire us, just encourage us to realize that you're gonna, you want to reward us, you want to praise us, and we've got this opportunity to live for you and just to motivate us to just be more of what you called us to be. Father, you know the hearts. I pray that you will speak to us today.